Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm really excited to introduce you to the new season three of our show. In this season, we will be continuing our coverage around digital well-being and expanding the conversation to cover sustainability and humanity and some of the critical issues of our day today around how we integrate technology into our work and lives. I would like to start this episode with one of our earlier interviews from this year with Nir Ayal, who was the author or is the author of Hooked and Indistractable. He shared his journey from teaching companies how to capture our attention to teaching us how to gain back the control. His interview revealed insight into the human psyche and business motivation for the battle for our attention. Here's Nir. If these tools get in the wrong hands, how do we make sure that, you know, that these these habit-creating things are for good rather than for evil? I mean, that's the question people keep asking me, and Mm -hmm. I don't have a really good answer because what I keep saying is basically, you know, humans are humans, and you can't necessarily, there's always going to be people that are good and people that have bad intentions. That's not the piece that I can necessarily change, but- you know, how do you, how do you tackle that when people ask you? Yeah. So I, I've thought about this quite a bit ever since the publication of my book, even before the publication of book, my book, there's actually a section in Hooked that's titled The Morality of Manipulation that gives kind of a framework for the product maker to ask themselves these two fundamental questions before they use these techniques. That if someone cares about building a product ethically and using these techniques for good, there are two questions that they should ask themselves. Number one, is the product materially improving people's lives? Right, that's the first question. And that's, that's very nice. I don't think it's good enough though. Mm. Uh, and there's one more question you need to ask. And that additional question is, am I the user? Mm. And so if you ask yourself these two questions, what I'm making you do is to break the first rule of drug dealing. Heidi, do you know the first rule of drug dealing? Uh, no. <laughs> Never get high on your own supply. Ah, okay. <laughs> That's the first rule of drug dealing. Never get high on your own supply. And so what I'm doing is by giving this two-part test of, is this materially improving people's lives? And am I the user? I am making people break the first rule of drug dealing, meaning if there are any deleterious effects to overusing the product, guess what? You'll be the first to know about it. Now, this is a test, This what I call the manipulation matrix that makers can use on themselves, so to speak, to ask yourself, hey, should I apply these techniques? Am I, am I using my precious time on earth to do something good, to use these techniques ethically? Not only if you pass those two, uh, th- those two questions, if you answer in the affirmative to those two questions, not only are you on the ethical side of using these techniques, but I would also argue that you're on the good side of, of good business practices, that you're much more likely to succeed in your business when you are making something that A, really benefits people's lives over the long term, and B, something that you yourself would use because that's the hardest part of product design. The most Mm -hmm. difficult part of building a a great product or service is understanding your user. 
And so when you yourself are the user, you have an incredible leg up over your competition. You know, it's very difficult to know what your customer wants. A great hack is to be the customer yourself. And if you look at the history of many of these world-changing companies, you know, almost all of them were started as a pet project for the founder, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one ethical test. Now, after writing the book, one of the things that bothered me, this test that I just gave, this morality of manipulation test, is really about the maker asking themselves this question of when should I apply these techniques ethically? But then there was this problem of what happens when you're in a team and someone on your team, let's say a, a boss or somebody wants to use a tactic that you don't agree with, a specific tactic, not just the overall product, but a specific tactic. What do you do as a product designer on a team in a business context to raise your hand and say, oh, I'm not sure if this is a great idea. What do you do? It used to be that the, the mantra repeated around Silicon Valley was what Google gave us, this mantra of don't be evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, even Google doesn't use that anymore because it's useless, right? <laughs> yeah. what, what is evil? It's, it's a very subjective metric. How do you know what evil is? As we all know, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions that uh, what we think is going to be fine turns out, you know, in the context of a business situation where there's profit to be made, sometimes people forget about those ethical implications. So I wanted a new test. So I looked around, I talked to a lot of ethicists. One of the the metrics that people tend to use a lot is the golden rule, right? Mm -hmm. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And I I think that's also a terrible metric because we, what does it matter what you want done to you? What matters is what the user wants done to themselves. Well, then another thing that ethicists told me was, well, as long as you have disclosure, right? If we just tell people what we're going to do, then that's enough, right? As long as they know, well, they, you know, eyes wide open, they'll make good ethical choices. And I think that's also a bad rule because we know what happens when we tell people too much, right? They read those terms. You see those terms of service. It's a joke to think anybody actually reads those terms of service. And you can put whatever you want inside of them because you've covered your ass. The lawyers say it's okay. But of course, nobody reads them. So that's also not a good ethical standard. So here's the ethical standard that I propose. And that is using what I call the regret test. The regret test says that using one of these behavioral design techniques has to pass this test of people not regretting what they did. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. So it's not the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's asking this, do unto others as they would want done to themselves. Okay, that is the regret test. And the beautiful thing about the regret test is that it is very practical. Mm -hmm. So if you see a business practice that you're not 100% comfortable with, you can raise your hand in that business context and say, hey, boss, you know, I'm not sure about this one. People might regret doing the behavior that we've designed for them to do. Why don't we test it, right? We have been testing user interfaces for decades. We know how to do that. You bring in 10 people into a room, you show them the interface, and you see if the interface you've designed is usable right? Do they understand what to do next? Mm -hmm. So we put them in a room, we build a prototype, we get them to start clicking, and then we tell them what just happened. Meaning, And we ask them this simple question, would you do what you just did knowing everything that I as the designer know, right? Let me give you a very practical example of a company that doesn't pass the regret test. And this this is not a new tech company. This is a very old company, the Wall Street Journal. So I used to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And they make it incredibly easy to subscribe. You log in, you give them your credit card information, and boom, you start getting the paper at your door. 
try and cancel the Wall Street Journal. And I imagine this is very similar to the New York Times or any other paper. It is awful. It's called the Roach Motel. Easy to come in, but nobody ever gets out. You can't cancel online. You have to call an 800 number during the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You get put on hold. You get talked to you know, a million times by five different people trying to convince you not to cancel. If I had known how difficult it would be to cancel, I would have never started the subscription in the first place. I regret ever doing business with that paper. Mm. And so that is a use case of how when we say, hey, you know, should we make it this difficult to cancel? Would the user regret doing business with us? And if the answer is yes, people would regret that, we shouldn't do it. And so that's a very simple test that will take care of the vast majority of these potential ethical implications. Not all of them, right? There are always unintended consequences to massive technological innovation. You know, Paul Varillo said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck, mm-hmm. right? So it's not that it's going to take care of every potential problem that's created by your product, but it prevents the foreseeable problems, the ones you should have caught through this simple test of bringing in 10 people into a room, showing them the product interface, getting them to take this regret test and seeing whether they would still take the intended behavior, knowing everything that you as the designer would know. In the next interview I want to share with you is with my old and dear friend, Farah Pandith, who is just an amazing woman that I was very excited to reconnect with through my podcast. She's the author of How We Win, How Cutting-Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat. Farah is a former first-ever special representative to Muslim communities at the U.S. Department of State. In this interview, Farah shares her critical and relevant wisdom from her experience as author, foreign policy strategist, and former diplomat, serving both in President George H.W. and George W. Bush and Obama's administrations. She helps us weed through the challenges of misinformation and mistrust. Here's Farah. What do you think was sort of the biggest challenge in sort of transitioning from the, you know, the work, your public service work to where you are now? And and how do we, because obviously the dynamic of the tools that we're using to reach our audience has changed. What do you, you know, where do you think we're going with that? And uh, what are your plans? One of the things that was really important for me when I left government was to be able to share with the American public what I had seen around the world. I felt very strongly that to be given an opportunity to serve your nation is one of the most incredible gifts you can have. And it was a true privilege to be able to serve. I served three American presidents, actually, in in my professional career. I'm not a political person, but I served as a political appointee. And I think that's a really important thing to say in the context of what's happening to our country right now where we're pushing and pulling and defining people by what we believe they are and what their political stances are. When I came into public service, it was about serving our nation and certainly was called back post 9-11 because as an American and as a Muslim, I was watching a terrorist organization try to define my country and my religion and felt very strongly that there was something that I needed to do to serve. So I say this to you because When I left government in 2014, it wasn't because I wasn't enjoying my time in government. It was because I felt that it was time to be able to tell the story of what was possible if you didn't have the optic of the U.S. government not sort of holding you back from sort of telling 
every contour of what is taking place from my perspective. And when you travel to as many countries as I was lucky enough to travel to, hearing and being part of so many conversations and meeting so many young people who had innovative ideas on how to stop extremism, it was, I felt, very important to be able to tell that story and give agency to these young people, but also to tell the American public that solutions to this vile us and them ideology are both affordable and they're available. And that's why I wrote this book. And such an important book. And so what are your sort of top things that you recommend people do? Because there is that gap. There is that basically big misunderstanding. There's there's miscommunication. There's there's so much fuzzy gray area there that people, you know, some people take it as black and white, but that in-between space is really challenging to communicate through and to to get clarity on sort of how can we help? How can we diminish and create a bridge, diminish this gray area gap? Well, it's such an important question, Heidi. Ultimately, people look at the issue of terrorism or extremism or the rise of hate in the world in our country, and they think it's a problem that's so difficult and so big that there is no way that they can make a difference. And I completely reject that. It is not too big. We are innovative problem solvers. <laughs> we are able to figure things out. And we have understood very precisely how young people form their identities, how environments impact the way kids are raised, how we think about the other. And I absolutely believe, as everybody listening to this podcast know, the way you treat each other, civility, how you give respect to another person, even if they have a different opinion actually goes a very long way to changing the nature of a community, however big or large that will be. And if you broaden that, that concept that you, one person can make a difference, it's beyond sort of a little tagline and little soundbite that sounds sweet. It's really about understanding what it means to be in your community and to create the kind of community that you want. We can either have a country that thinks that hate is fine, and we can be lazy on trying to solve it, or we can say, what do we know about how to change the way in which we feel as a nation? It's, and and we, there are things that we can do at a neighbor level, at a school level, at a state level, at a national level that can, get, can absolutely impact the way we think about the us versus them ideology. So- I love what you're saying. And I think that's so important. But I think for individuals, sometimes they don't even know where to start. I mean, when we were living in Sweden, for example, I remember there was a big sort of discussion and controversy over because they didn't allow baseball caps in school. But what was the discussion was, can they wear the hijab, for example? And mm-hmm. and sort of the the implications of that, because it was so much beyond like a piece of clothing. And I think that there, you know, there's so much that it's a very heavy topic. And how do we bridge that as individuals? How do we help people understand the bigger picture? I think it's a a critical question you're asking. And even the first step may sound really so small that you think it really is nothing you can do. I often talk to parents who ask how to raise children who can be, you know, light in, in all this darkness, who can in fact, propel a different kind of image in their school about how to absorb the other, how to think about the other with dignity. 
even though that there's difference and you may not buy into everything that other person stands for. And the contours of those conversations that parents are having around their breakfast table or dining room table is the first place to start. And I know that sounds really obvious, but really it is the way in which we teach our young generations to understand, for example, what the bad actors do online. We keep them away from places online because we know that it's dangerous for them. That means the parents have had that conversation with their children. If we think bad things are happening in our neighborhood, you know, neighborhood watches come together, communities come together, and they think, how can we work on this together? We don't have that kind of mindset necessarily in communities across our country with regard to creating a more civil space. And I think that can be done. I think that there's far more, even without money, even without tons of time, it requires, you know, leaders within communities, parents, and others to say, what do we want this community to be? What do we want our neighborhood to be? Forget about an entire town. What do we want the four blocks around our house to be like? What do we think about these issues? And so when you bring that forward and you begin to have the conversation about discussion about difference, it becomes more manageable. It doesn't become this gigantic thing that is too difficult to be able to navigate through. There's a lot of pain in some of these conversations that happen around sexuality or race or religion and identity. But belonging is something that every human craves. And we can do a better job of making each other feel like they belong. Absolutely. And to that point, you obviously cover this piece in your book, but looking at, you know, people that are influencers, and that comes everywhere, you know, all the way down to, you know, the kid that's got this incredible YouTube channel that's got a big following to people, you know, business leaders who have a big following and are influencers. What are the kinds of things that we can do to make sure that they are actually or, or that if we are one of those people, that we are doing things to actually be more productive and positive and to sort of generate that counter effect to the extreme? What is it? Yeah, no, Heidi, this is important. And I think, you know, you talked about sort of the, the gravitas that we apply to this issue becomes so paralyzing that many don't feel like they can even just get at it. Mm -hmm. And so if you are a leader, to be able to break it down to just the smallest block, the simplest aspect of how you treat another person is the way in which you start. And also for the leaders that are out there, you know, we become very nervous about saying too much or doing too much that could somehow tarnish who we are. Mm -hmm. It is never wrong to be kind. It is never wrong to be compassionate. And even talking about those words, you know, people get nervous about that. They feel like it's too gushy. They won't be taken seriously. We have to talk about the tools in our toolbox that aren't just difficult tools or hard power tools or military or law enforcement. We have to be able to talk about the softer tools in our toolkit that allow us to do a lot more at a faster speed with less money when we apply them. The next interview I'd really like to share with you is with an amazing gentleman named Kenneth Bowles. Kenneth was actually, I found him through a like-minded area, nothing like social media, to connect people who are doing interesting things that are in the same area, although they're on the other side of the planet. He's a fellow design and digital ethicist, sharing great insight into the efforts that policymakers are attempting 
to create in order to ensure that our privacy and safety are protected. It's clear there's a long way to go on this, and it's critical for us to have ongoing champions like Kenned. Here's his interview. What we've seen a lot is sort of the binary approach of, you know, either all technology or no technology. And what we're realizing now is that technology is so embedded in everything that you can't take that binary approach. It's there's mm. you have to really distinguish sort of between the good and the bad and the pieces that are sort of somewhere in between. And what does that mean? What's your take on that? Well, I'm going to echo the words of a fellow called Peter Paul Verbeek. He's a philosopher of technology in the Netherlands. And I really like Verbeek's take on this, which is that ethics should accompany technological progress. It doesn't have to necessarily directly oppose it. Now, there will be times when it absolutely should, of course, but we should see it as something that accompanies the way we build products and services. It shouldn't be a checklist at the end. It should become more of an ethos, a lens through which we see the world around us. Because as you hint at, that idea of, you know, we shouldn't really separate what humans can do from what technologies can do, because these things act together. We become these hybrid interwoven actors. And that takes a shift in thinking away from this idea that's been predominant in the field that the things we build are just neutral tools, right? And therefore, it's not really our problem if they're used for harm. That doesn't work because the things we build affect how people can interact with society and with each other. So it is now incumbent upon us within the industry to start recognizing and anticipating some of those impacts and doing what we can to design better systems that reduce those harms. But don't you think there's still the human in that process? It's not that, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about the, the technology not being neutral, but my approach is that the technology itself is actually still neutral. It's just that we need to recognize the human in the design process and the impact that we can have in creating something that is not designed for harm, or that it also, if it has the potential to do that, that we provide the tools to teach the users how to avoid that harm, whether it's to themselves or to others. So it's, it's more about recognizing the human in the process and wh- how we can influence that rather than the inanimate object itself. Yes, I think, I think you're right. There is a risk that we potentially become a bit paternalistic and say, you know, maybe go too far with that line of thinking and say, well, it's up to us to educate the public on how to use technologies responsibly. And I wouldn't want to diminish the agency of these people. I mean, these, you know, these are smart, motivated people across the world in all sorts of different circumstances. Some of them will absolutely have ill intent, right? Some of them will want to harass and abuse using the systems that we build. Our job then, of course, becomes to try and hamper those people as much as we can. But you're absolutely right. I think there is perhaps a tendency, maybe the pendulum has swung a little too far, there's a tendency to blame the technologies and the technologists and to diminish the user's role in this as well. So I'm very interested in getting those folks involved in a wider conversation. It's not just for us to solve. This should also be a democratic, a regulatory, and a societal change in how we approach technologies as well as a technological one. There's a broader conversation that that has to happen outside the walls of Silicon Valley. Absolutely. And to that point, there's, you know, we've been hearing a lot more about what's happening in the US. And there's some conversation here. But of course, the US is very, it's always been very insular in terms of, you know, understanding what's happening in the rest of the world. And I'm very fortunate because I've lived on both sides. And I, I'm actually both a Swedish citizen and an American citizen. And sort of, 
I get that mixed experience, but I've also done a lot of work with the European Commission, but I've been outside of it for a while. And it sounds like you might be a little more connected to what's happening there. Can you share a little bit about what's going on in terms of the conversation of regulation or you know, what's happening in that space? Because I think that's really important to understand from the perspective of what can we do, you know, where conversations need to be happening. Sure. This is obviously a, you know, a very large topic. In the EU, the ship has sailed on regulation. It's going to happen. It's coming. There is a strong case that the industry deserves it. GDPR, your listeners will be aware of, the General Data Protection Regulations, that was the first step. We will absolutely see further regulation from the EU around, say, provenance of ads, re- you know, revealing sources of funding for advertising. There may be further antitrust, anti-competitive action taken against the tech giants. And there is the public sentiment to support that. There is a fundamental, but potentially quite subtle, but still fundamental difference in the default mentalities of, say, a company like Germany towards tech companies and their roles in controlling data and using that responsibly compared to, say, California. And that pressure is coming up through representatives in the EU and and actually also in in the US as well. So we're likely to see more. The UK is already talking about increasing regulation on to prevent things like fake news. There are a lot of movements around the new copyright directive in the EU, which is divisive, shall we say, and um, there may not be completely one battle yet. But yeah, there's going to be plenty more. Now, on the US side of things, I think the tech industry is essentially getting flack now from both political wings. And so whatever happens in the next series of elections, I think it's likely there'll be moves in that direction as well to regulate the field. But there are some analysts now suggesting that these regulatory frameworks are going to differ so strongly between the EU, the US, and and particularly China, that we'll actually end up with three sub-internets, essentially that that will make this global internet we have today pretty much incompatible with those regulatory regimes. And we'll end up building these regional sub-internets or not, not, not necessarily by intent, but fragmenting in that way, where the US has a different approach to regulation and user data and so on. The EU potentially has a tighter hand on that stuff. And then China, of course, has a background where the public and private line is significantly blurred. So uh, rules around data flow and surveillance and things like that may be significantly different there. So there's going to be a lot of change, and it could be quite fundamentally challenging to this monolithic internet that we have today. This next piece was with Don Hernandez, who's the founder of Enlight where they're using neuroscience and psychology for digital therapeutics. And Light provides Sigma-free treatment for mental health issues. Don shared his insight into the potential for reaching many who suffered from addiction and PTSD, and even the more common issues of stress, anxiety, and depression. Using an app that combines binaural beats and cognitive behavioral therapies, the treatments can be delivered over smartphone or tablet. Full disclosure here, I have recently signed on to help them with some research studies, as I really believe that mental health to be a critical issue that has not received enough attention. And I hope you'll take a moment to test out their app, because it's a really interesting concept. And during this interview, Don actually shares some of the binaural beats with us, so you get a sense of how that works. So there's an evolving market called digital therapeutics, and it's especially relevant for mental health. 
and we're HIPAA compliant. We're in the process of going through FDA class one, class two approval as a medical device. But there are a lot of applications out there that deal with meditation, which is fantastic. Been scientifically validated again and again, just to help overall well-being. We have a sleep tracker integrated as well. Once again, scientifically validated. And then we have a couple other things that we add as well. So we start the day in this difficult time in the divided world that we live in. It's sometimes difficult to think of things to be thankful for. So we suggest to start off by thinking of three things that you're grateful for and three things that would make your day better every day. And then we suggest a little bit of meditation. And then what we have is a patent pending technology called binaural beats and subliminal affirmations. And this is really, really neat. So what it means is we put a different frequency in each ear and your brain creates an illusion in the middle and we can induce a brain state in two and a half minutes. So there are five brain states and the one that is free with the app is theta and that's conducive with calm, relaxation, peace of mind, easygoing because that's what people that you know are stressed and anxious about could use the most. And that goes back to our core principle, something of significant value free of charge. Now, on top of inducing a brain state, we pump subliminal affirmations into your subconscious mind that bypass your conscious mind, which may reject them. I am a good person. I love life. Things like this, all designed by neuroscientists, and you, you can't hear any of it. So it, it is, that is one thing that we're especially proud of. Most of the people that I know use it all the time. Generally, we'll start our day with theta for a little bit of meditation. We'll go to gamma for peak performance, rapid memory recall, innovation. So high performance in the daytime. And then delta is perfect for going to sleep because it is for deep dreamless sleep. And everyone that I talk to, they're like, wow, these tracks are 20 minutes long. And delta is just about guaranteed to knock you out by the 20 minute mark is done. So. Well, I won't ask you anything about Delta in terms of actually demonstrating because probably some of our listeners are actually listening while they're driving a vehicle. But is it possible (laughs) for them to hear a little bit example of what you're talking about? I mean, I think this is fascinating. And it's, you know, the whole idea of resonance and how sound responds with your body and your brain is just an area that I think is, you know, we're really just starting to understand the potential for it. Is there a little piece that you could maybe play for us so we get? I could certainly do that. To give, and I'll, I'll actually do it a little bit better. I'll take you on the journey that we went through because we have three to four neuroscientists and psychologists working on our team at any given time. And it's a reverse democracy. So that means if three say yes, this is good, and one says no, then it's a no and we go back to the drawing board. So the thought from the neuroscientists was that if we tried to mask the beats. So there's one beat in each ear. So they're called mineral beats. The brain creates a binaural beat in the middle. We tried to mask that it would reduce the effectiveness. But most people said they would rather jump out of the window than listen to a binaural beat pure, which is counterproductive. So I'm going to have to unplug this headset a little bit so that you can hear. So you, my voice will be different, but you'll hear the waves. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Okay. So let's say the binaural beats sound like unmasked. So then we tried it with white noise, and it sounded like this, which, frankly, I thought was even worse. Ouch! (laughs) And this is what we ended up with. I like that. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, like I said, a three-month journey. And mm-hmm. what you get there is it, it's completely masked. 
And what we found out after a lot of research, it's not the masking that reduces the effectiveness at all, but compression. Mm. So you may see websites that say they have binaural beats and subliminal affirmations. So once again, these are 20-minute files, and it's not a typical Apple Tune download of 3.5 megabytes. These are 220 megabytes per file. And we found that we cannot compress that. So there are three warnings that we have when you sign up for binaural beats. One is that you cannot be over six months pregnant because it could induce labor. Two, you cannot be epileptic because it could induce a seizure. And three, be on Wi-Fi, not on your data plan. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you may have a seizure when you get your phone bill at the end of the month. So, <laughs> But we've got a full media library, and uh, you, can, <laughs> you can download them once on your phone, connect to Wi-Fi, and download them, and they're there forever. And the theta brain state, once again, peace, relaxation is absolutely free of charge with the app, along with everything else that we talked about, the gratitude journal, uh, meditation, and the two main components of cognitive behavioral therapy are mood and activity tracking Mm -hmm. to determine correlations between what you do and how you feel, which may seem like it's self-explanatory, but it's not always. In fact, it's often not. And then on top of that, it's just all about mindfulness. It's really paying attention to things. When you go into addiction, there's another group as well, which is triggers to consume, cravings to consume. How intense were they? And then consumption itself. Did you consume or did you not? And then we take all these together. The algorithms will map against national databases, international databases, and based on deviations in behavior, we can proactively alert you if there's a danger of you slipping into a mentally degraded mode, which is a, a way of saying a place you don't want to be, not, not a space to be in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what we try to do is encourage people to be in a good spot, a good space, make people more happy and productive. Because these things that we talk about, especially addiction, they destroy individuals. It, well, it destroys individuals, it destroys families, and it degrades the performance of entire societies because of the productivity loss. This next soundbite is from a new friend. Her name is Susan Farron. She's founder of Resiliency First, and she shares her incredible story of developing programs to support the mental and physical health of first responders who witnessed so much trauma, which actually ends up living out through their bodies. Her dedication to bring these programs to a global audience is amazing, and as a paramedic for 30-plus years herself, she really understands both the need and potential for such programs. I'm happy to share with you this little soundbite from her interview, and I hope you'll check out her work. First responders and, and paramedics, are their whole world is changing. So I would imagine uh, the need for what you're doing is so much greater. It's really interesting as I was doing this research initially two and a half years ago into what was happening to first responders, what I realized in doing this was it wasn't just the psychological changes that were taking place in us, not just the stress of what was happening to us emotionally, but there were actually neurological changes taking place to our brains as a result of being repeatedly exposed. There were physical changes. Actually, we discovered that organ cancer is one of the top killers of first responders that they have a life expectancy of 15 years less than civilians, a divorce rate of higher than 70%, an addiction rate that's almost difficult to track. And most importantly, out of all of that, a suicide rate that has doubled since 2014. And that was the primary issue that I looked at that and said, we have got to do something to intervene on this because these folks are not asking for help. They're going inside and solving the problem through permanent means, which is not what we want happening. And from what I remember of our conversation, you were talking about a lot of it was just uh, teaching people that there is 
resources out there and that it's okay to to seek out, seek help when you're when you're feeling this way but also just training the organizations that are supporting them that there is this need because it was so hush hush yeah what we realize is that a big part of what's happened is everything that has been centered around the care of first responders and of course we saw this initially with uh, veterans both vietnam and then of course now we've got the middle east experience is a lot of what was happening for veterans was reactive. Once they had the symptoms of PTSD, or what we now refer to as PTSI, we refer to it as an injury, not a disorder, because it happens as a result of a trauma, just like an injured leg would. And so PTSI, the treatment has always been reactive. So once you have the symptoms of of post-traumatic stress injury, then you seek care. What we do is we provide a a proactive approach. We train people um, not only what you're going to see, but how your body's going to respond to that and what skills and techniques you can use to help keep that stress at bay so that you don't take it home. It doesn't store inside your nervous system. It doesn't store inside your body so that you can stay well, get well, and have a happy personal, professional career life because when you store those sorts of stresses and toxins in your body, the whole human system pays the price. Absolutely. And there's, there's such a great need for that. How do you scale something like this? Because it is, it seems like you're really on the cutting edge of something that's so critical for the support of, of first responders, but of basically helping us through this next step where there are, there are so many things happening You've been looking at scaling. I know we talked a little bit about this, where technology takes can can help. But what's your solution? And in terms of besides just finding the education piece, well, what we're doing now is certainly part of it is the awareness and the education, as you said. But also, we provide modalities for folks to be able to use everything that's from things that are being used by elite athletes to the military as well, special ops divisions where we train people in techniques that can be utilized. Everything from, like we said earlier, nervous system control, tactical breathing, discharging the energy from your body, recognizing your mind patterns, your focus, things that can be used from a physical vantage point to reduce that. But another area that we're using that is really sort of on the cutting edge of tracking this is technology and specifically things like creating we're working on now is a first responder app. And that specifically allows the first responder to track their own trauma exposure based on how they felt about the event, whether that was a minor exposure or a very severe exposure to trauma, maybe a fatal accident or a shooting where they were there and there was a a loss of life. And in which case is the first responder tracks their own exposure it will actually, the, the app will drive them towards areas where we've trained them in modalities and self-care. So the higher the graph towards uh, exposure, the higher the press for them to do some of these techniques to reduce their own stress. The last interview I want to share with you today on our highlights show is with a dear old friend, Tim Driver, who is the founder of Age-Friendly Ventures, which is empowering boomers in the workforce and out. In this interview, we share a conversation from 2006, both coming from tech jobs. We're realizing that our experience really can have a greater social impact by empowering the underserved, but growing populations. So Tim really developed some amazing work building on that time and is now really empowering seniors, but understanding how seniors engage with technology and the critical 
factor of them understanding how to use some of the base pieces of these technologies to basically keep them from being lonely and sad. And really, which these are some of the critical issues, as well as being gainfully employed. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview. And here's Tim. We obviously saw some major downturn in the economy where all of a sudden we have a lot of 65-year-olds who thought they were already retired or going to retire and then all of a sudden had no savings. That obviously changed the way that they had to think about their future and made them look at different things. Are there other things that have influenced that for you and have influenced the way that you have designed or developed your businesses? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the, you know, the, the sort of bigger vision here is that if we do our job right, the hope that I have is that we can help people find work, help people find a place to live where that work is, and give people care when they need it. And so all of these things are interacting with each other. There are different brand names, but it's one big database underneath it. So it used to be, as a business, a little disappointing when we found somebody a job because all of a sudden they were done and they didn't need our services any longer. And then we sort of added the other divisions with the idea that we could you know, help them in other ways down the line. But back to the point you made about you know, people getting older and having difficulty you know, navigating that change in their life, it's absolutely true. I mean, the, the difficulties become acute you know, it, it starts to happen around age 50 and, or maybe even earlier than that. And, you know, people get seen in a little bit different way by employers. And, you know, some of those reasons are justified. Most of them are not. And so we've committed ourselves and, you know, we've been a very mission-driven company from the beginning, but we've committed ourselves to, you know, helping to make the business case for the older job seeker and, and let employers see the business benefits of taking that leap, if you will, and hiring an older, more mature worker. And so what's tended to happen, you know, is that the companies that have really done their homework on topics like turnover rates have kind of figured out, and we've helped them figure out that, you know, if you want to lower your turnover rate, the odds are you should hire somebody older because the data just shows that people over 50 turn over at one-third the rate of people under 50. And that addresses a big problem. Turnover is very costly, but turnover is also can be, you know, low turnover can be, can have a huge benefit to companies' customer satisfaction. So it's a, it's a very, very fascinating topic if you dig into the details of it. But unfortunately, the reality is age discrimination is out there and it's uh, it can be tough to battle against. So we've taken that on as a big part of our company's mission. I would imagine, but I, you know, I think the advantage you see like with the internet is because you have certain sense of anonymity. If you're a, I mean, in my case, I'm a digital nomad. I do most of my work over the internet. So whether it's through a Zoom call when I'm working with my clients in France, or whether it's meeting up in a, you know, in a, in a virtual classroom where I'm teaching a group that's dispersed around the globe, these different environments are possible that I could actually be teaching through an avatar. They don't even have to see me. They don't know how old I am, or they can tell by my voice that I'm a woman. But beyond that, the biases are different. It's more based on what you have to offer rather than uh, those biases. 
but you still have to have a certain level of technical expertise to be able to accomplish that. In the work that you're doing, do you find some of your clients willing to sort of take that leap to engage and sort of, you know, not play the age card, but say, hey, I'm neutral. I just, here I am with my expertise and I can work, you know, virtually. You don't need to know because of course they're not supposed to ask, but in some countries they do. But can they get away with that? Or are most of the jobs that you're doing face-to-face where they, you know? You know, one of the most popular jobs on retirementjobs.com is tutoring, Mm. online tutoring. And um, we have, you know, companies, for example, that recruit older tutors, provide tutoring on all sorts of topics. And sometimes those are people, you know, that the students are in the U.S. and sometimes they're actually overseas. And that's a very, very popular job because it's part-time, it's flexible. And, you know, helping kids is always something that feels a little bit rewarding too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the retirement jobs that we offer that do well tend to meet those kinds of criteria. And other things that are sort of practical too, like, you know, a job like a bank teller, let's say, or a retail job, you have to be on your feet all day long. But if you're a tutor or you're a caregiver or you're a customer service person, you tend to have a little bit more flexibility, but also, and you can be part-time, but you can also be sitting down, which as a practical matter can mean something. Mm -hmm. But I want to touch on something you said, which is about just, you know, using technology. It's really, really important that older job seekers become adept and just very familiar with some of the technologies like the one we're using right now. These are these should be extraordinarily familiar to you. And you should be maintaining the same kind of online presence that a younger person would. So for example, if you're not on LinkedIn, you don't exist. Mm. You're not familiar with a technology like Zoom, then you know, quite honestly, you're not doing your job of being a good job seeker. So these are things that you really do have to catch up on if you're not already there. And then it becomes a question, you know, once you get to the interview stage of persuading the person who's hiring you, who could be 20 years younger than you, that you don't want their job or you don't know everything and can't be taught new things. You, you have to sort of use, you know, regular language and then body language and all the right ways of sort of persuading that, you know, you're not going to, you know, be a negative as an older job candidate. One of the things that's really interesting to watch happen, and this is particularly important in our mature caregivers business, is that as much as the technology gets more sophisticated, more easy to use, more more accepted by you know people of all ages, it can never replace human beings. You know, we have in our caregiver business, we I sort of think of it as it's a service business that's heavily enabled by technology. But at the end of the day, it's about putting people with people and encouraging socialization. And then there's other, you know, on this point about socialization, I mean, it's a really, really important point. And even, you know, technology like the one we're using right now is, you know, enables people to connect at distances and address that huge issue, which is social isolation. I mean, there's all sorts of data out there that shows now that social isolation can be as bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And over in the UK, they've even gone to the extent of putting into the cabinet a minister of loneliness, believe it or not. And so it's a really big priority 
in all of the countries around the world, this social isolation topic. This episode is brought to you by My Wellbeing Tech of Choice. And I think you've all heard me talk about these guys before. Oscar Pulse has really helped relieve my chronic pain that was caused by Lyme disease so that I can get back to work and life in general. Oscar Pulse is a pain relief and recovery device using pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, PEMF. And it creates an electromagnetic field that pulsates while it modulates the damaged cells to squeeze the toxins out and open the cells to allow nutrients, so potassium, sodium, magnesium, to flow into the cell. That sounds really complex. It is actually quite complex, but it's in this tiny little device that really is very effective and powerful and has made the world of a difference for me. And they have been kind enough to invite us to be ambassadors And as a result, you get a discount when you want to purchase the device, and we get a little bit of support for our show, and it helps us keep running. So go check it out and use the 2B as in boy, U as in Uruguay, I guess. I was just there, so that's the U that's coming to my mind, On as their discount code on oscawellness.com, O-S-K-A, wellness.com. You can check that out in the show notes to get more information. So today, I realize it's been a very long show, but I just wanted to make sure you got a little bit of a segue into what's coming up in the season ahead. We've got some great interviews. I'm really excited to introduce to you some of my new guests. It's been a really exciting time where there's a lot of changes happening both in my life and in the world around tech and integration into humanity. And I think that we've got a lot of great conversations ahead. So I hope you'll stick with us. And if you're not already subscribed, take a moment to, and if you really like the show, please give us your feedback. Let us know. Give us a rating, a review. We appreciate it. And it helps boost us up in the rankings so people will actually find us. And wouldn't the world be a better place if we all learned a little bit more about how to integrate the digital world into our lives without losing humanity? So thank you again for joining the show today and sticking with us. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.